continuing this very rich chapter on meditation. And if you remember the reading yesterday uh, was uh, finished on the subject of these two different uh, styles or um, attributes of liberation, uh, liberation through concentration or Chetavimuti as Lumpur Chah would um, they use the term and Panyavimuti, liberation through wisdom. These uh, say designate or, or describe sort of a rough division of um, personality types. Those who are more have an, a, uh, uh, an inclination, uh, a um, uh, say, uh, uh, capacity for concentration, and then those who have more of a discursive or um, reflective uh, mental faculties. So this next section is called The Work of Wisdom. If the mind was able to enter access samadhi, but consistently refused to go deeper, then the investigation of phenomena could begin. The theme that Lumpur would usually suggest to investigate at this point was the 32 parts of the body, or else the first five, head hair, body hair, nails, teeth and skin, or whichever part suits one. And Lumpur is speaking here. In meditation, it's not necessary to visualize a lot of things. We visualize only things that will give rise to wisdom. We need to look from the top of the head right down to the soles of the feet and from the soles of the feet up to the top of the head. What is this? How real is it? Why do people attach to it so tenaciously? Why are we so concerned about it? What's the reason? What does the body consist of? We investigate all these things until we see them in their true light, as just that much. As soon as you see that, understand that, then the grasping onto things as, oh, I love this so much, or I hate it so much, withdraws from the mind. Some meditators would find that the investigation of the body or the arising and passing away of sense data would give rise to a rapture that would push the mind over the edge into a state of lucid calm. The mind would then alternate between resting and recharging its powers in the lucid calm and doing the work of wisdom. A common anxiety was that with the development of deep samadhi, the bliss and sense of completeness that would ensue would be too absorbing to abandon in order to investigate the three characteristics. Paul's answer was that it was indeed a genuine danger for meditators with wrong view or who developed samadhi in an imbalanced way. However, when the time was ripe and with the meditator's emphasis placed firmly on mindfulness and alertness, samadhi, if correctly developed, would turn naturally to the work of wisdom. And again, Lumpur uh, Chara is speaking here. Look after what you've already developed and intensify your mindfulness. If you give more importance to mindfulness than to anything else, then you won't go wrong. It's the correct way to put forth effort. If your mindfulness is still not fully matured, you must try to increase it so that you have the measure of everything that occurs in your mind. Knowledge will arise whenever mindfulness becomes clear and bright because wisdom depends on this ability to be aware of everything that passes through your mind. So that's it. If you have mindfulness, it will give birth to wisdom, 
and you'll see clearly and understand. Without mindfulness, you don't know where your mind has gone. Develop as much mindfulness as you can. It's of immense value in upholding your awareness and maintaining it on the path of peace. Mindfulness is the Buddha himself supporting and cautioning us. We become Buddha-like when we have mindfulness because the mind is awake, it knows, it sees and is restrained. Restraint and composure arise through mindfulness. Wherever defilements still lurk unseen, it's because the flaws in your mindfulness allow them to evade you. But whenever mindfulness becomes clear, then the mind and your wisdom become radiant. So, don't make too much out of things. Don't attach to ideas of self and other. Just keep putting forth effort. My advice is to simply carry on like that. And as long as nothing comes up, then there's no need for any investigation. Carry on normally, as if you were walking along a road or sweeping the house. When you're sweeping, you keep going without looking around at anything else. It's only if someone calls your name, and you know that there's some business to be seen to, that you look up. Without interruptions, you just carry on with your sweeping. Similarly, in meditation, only when something comes up should you investigate. Otherwise, merely contemplate your present experience. Simply maintain the mindfulness to be aware of that. If nothing comes up, then rest at ease. But that, that doesn't mean just letting things go their own way and ignoring them. There is care and attention. You're aware of whatever passes through the mind, but you don't need a lot of investigation. When something impinges at one of the sense doors, and in turn impinges on the mind, then keep watch on it. If you don't lose sight of it, you'll see it as just that much. Then you can return to where you were. Don't run away from that place, because if you do, before long you'll find yourself carried off to heaven and hell. Be careful. So this, um, the uh, initial practice of visualizing the, the, the body and its various parts or various attributes, this was something that uh, Lumpur Cha himself did and uh, other places in the book uh, it's described in a, a little bit more detail um, and one of the descriptions that, that um, I recall hearing him give was that he would uh, begin every period of meditation with a kind of standard procedure of taking his skin off and lie, you know, in his imagination <laughs> so he would imagine taking his skin off and sort of laying it out in front of him like a mat and then taking the various organs like his lungs and his liver and his guts and his stomach and whatnot and just sort of piling them up on this skin mat just, you know, meanwhile he's sort of sitting there watching it and just say, rearranging the parts of the body to give this um, uh, a sense of uh, a curiosity or investigation or, or, no, or not just seeing the body in a habitual way of uh, I'm like this, I'm so many feet tall, I am a man or I am uh, healthy or I'm unhealthy but when you've got your, your heart and your lungs and your liver and your pancreas and your guts all sort of piled up in a heap it kind of changes the, uh, the way that we see ourselves when you sort of rearrange the bits or turn the skin around so it's got the kind of bloody stuff on the outside and the, the, the hairy stuff on the inside think, well, ugh, how weird, how strange, but why is it that strange? We, we, we only see our, our skin with the, uh, the kind of the smooth stuff and the, and the hair on the outside and the, the, the blood and, and muscles and such like on the inside. But it's really just uh, uh, because it's familiar to us or it's, that's the customary arrangement, but 
why is it so strange or, or odd uh, or, or kind of wrong or bad or weird to, to rearrange it? So it's, uh, as he describes here, uh, you're, you're uh, visualizing the body to, in a sense, break the spell. To um, uh, the, the word glamour uh, that we use in, in English, uh, uh, usually meaning sort of someone trying to make themselves attractive, it comes from a, um, a Greek a, a concept out of Greek mythology where someone would, would make themselves appear in a different way. Like if you're familiar with the story of uh, Odysseus um, returning after his uh, many years of wanderings after the Trojan War, when he arrived back on his home island of Ithaca, then uh, his protectress, the goddess Athene, then put a glamour on him so that even though he was... He was still Odysseus. He didn't look like uh, he, uh, he normally did. He looked like an, a, a very an old, decrepit man. So that that kind of the glamour is like a a, a, um, a sort of uh, uh, an appearance that is put on something that to to change the perception. And so what you're trying to do with these uh, reflections on the, the the different parts of the body is not to make yourself re re repelled or disgusted in particular or to look at the body in a negative way but just in, in a sense to break that spell to break the glamour and to see the this body as it as it actually is as a sort of as it says a sealed bag of skin um, and that when you're filled with uh, lots of water and bones and muscles and, and various things that it's like if you had a, a balloon filled with water, you know, you pick it up and the, all the water would sort of sink to the bottom. But then <coughs> we um, uh, uh, we see well, our body. Why, how how different is our body if we see it as a uh, a bag filled with with lots of fluid and goop? Then uh, um, then isn't it kind of strange that actually most of it stays in a in a fairly um, standard configuration? But uh, when we say uh, we find we've been sitting on a plane or a bus for a long time, our our, uh, our feet or our ankles are swelled up. Oh, my feet are really swollen up. Well, well, of course, because gravity works on water and fluid, and it and it pulls it down, and so it ends up in your feet. So your why shouldn't your feet just be like a uh, a balloon filled with with uh, with water that uh, the the fluids in the body just naturally descend? It's pulled by the force of gravity. And then when when I when I say these words, you go, oh, how weird. That was, that's not normal, <laughs> but it's we we should recognise that it's the body has to work really hard to keep all of the the fluids and things distributed in an even way as they as they do to keep pumping the blood and the lymph and and everything around to have it um, working against the force of gravity all the time. And if the body stops um, sort of being integrated by the life force, then it. This follows the laws of nature, so that the 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 matter that form the body just sink down to to ground level. Um, how, how should they not? So it's a, in a sense of looking at our own body and looking at the bodies of other people in a different way, sort of demystifying or or seeing them as they they uh, they are in terms of being put together with these different uh, out of these different elements and different uh, aspects, and that. The idea that the body is is sort of supposed to be in a particular configuration, and if it's in a different configuration, it's sort of wrong or bad. To to uh, raise that question of oh well, what what's bad about that, or what's wrong about that, or or, or why do I see it that way? So it's r through rousing that question, it uh, triggers that um, arising of of wisdom and seeing things in a in a broader way.
<coughs> then the um, the comments that Lumpur makes about mindfulness here, and it says, mindfulness is the Buddha himself supporting and cautioning us. We become Buddha-like when we have mindfulness. So this also relates to the Thai word for awareness um, that, uh, and the, the word for the Buddha, because uh, the, one of the, the ways that the Buddha is described is Puru. The word Pu comes from uh, uh, Purisa, meaning a person or a human being. So, and then the word ru means to know. So puru is the one who knows, or the, the person who knows. So that one of the attributes of the Buddha was puru, the, the one who knows, the one who is aware, the one who is awake. But also that same exact same term, puru, is, is uh, used to refer to the awareness of your own mind. And so this is a very common theme, not just with, with Lumpur Cha, but with the forest, uh, 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 the uh, Ajans as well, the, the, um, that the, uh, the talk uh, in terms, uh, in a very sort of interchangeable way, that the, the Buddha and the quality of awareness are, um, are seen as a um, sort of equivalence or, or very closely related qualities. And it was very common for Lumpur Cha to uh, say, to taking refuge in the Buddha, like Bhutang Saranangachami not just uh, using the word Buddha there to refer to Gautama Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago as the teacher and the founder of our religious tradition, but uh, to take refuge in awareness itself. And so that's a, like a very, very common and sort of core theme in the forest uh, Ajahn's teaching is they, that to take refuge in the Buddha is not just to revere a, a, a being who lived two and a half thousand years ago, and to say have gratitude or respect or reverence for that for that being, but to uh, to see that the the quality of awareness is a, a refuge in terms of, of our attitude. That if the mind takes refuge in in awareness in knowing, then it's a gen there's a genuine safety. That uh, whether what's experienced is pleasant or painful, beautiful or ugly. If the mind takes refuge in awareness, then it knows those feelings of pleasure or pain or, or uh, uh, happiness or unhappiness, and it's not confused by those, it's not limited by those, so that that abiding in awareness or taking refuge in awareness is, is a, a genuine psychological refuge, it's a safe psychological place, as it were. And sometimes, it, not particularly here, but in, in other Dhamma talks that uh, Lumpur Cha gave, he would say, Things that were, would seem to be quite heretical, like say, you know, the Buddha who lived two and a half thousand years ago, you know, he's he's gone, he's not around, he's the he's not the refuge that is important. That that the memory of a person who lived all those years ago is just a memory, it's an image, like a, a a rupa on the shrine. That isn't that isn't a safe place. It might be an inspiring image, but. Uh, that uh, just holding on to an image or, or a memory or an idea that that doesn't give the same kind of psychological security. Um, so uh, he carried enough authority to be able to say those things, and people would go, <gasps> "What?" You know, this and, and but, uh, <coughs> but he was quite happy with sounding a bit heretical. You know, occasionally that would get people's attention <laughs> if they're getting a bit sleepy or just drifting off. You know, he'd say things like, "You know, the Buddha who lived two and a half." 2,500 years ago is not a refuge. <gasps> what do you mean? But then he would point out that a refuge is a safe place. You know, a refuge it has a, a, a quality of, sec of genuine security. So where 
uh, where that genuine security is found is an aspect of your mind. It's not just a, a, a memory or an idea or, a, or an image on a shrine, but rather it's an attribute of your own mind that you can use, that, you, that can be a, a resource uh, here and now. And that when that, there is that, as it were, taking refuge in awareness, being, um, being awake, being aware, then whether what's experienced is pleasant or painful, praise or criticism, gain or loss, comfort or discomfort, happiness or unhappiness, the, the mind can know those, those, uh, those particular qualities without attaching to them, without, without identifying with them, without rejecting them, without buying into them. It, it can uh, know those qualities clearly and without, without confusion. So then uh, <coughs> Ajahn Jayasaru carries on with his uh, commentary here. Long illustrated this point with a simile. Meditators should be like a spider at the center of its web. The spider remains still and wakeful until an insect gets caught in the web. Then it darts out, deals with the insect, and returns to its still space. One common view of meditation practice is that the deeper levels of samadhi are unnecessary for liberation. That momentary samadhi provides a sufficient base for the development of vipassana. When asked about this on one occasion, Lumpur replied with an uh, analogy. You have to walk all the way to Bangkok so that you know what Bangkok is like. Don't just go as far as Korat, which is a city halfway between Ubon and Bangkok. Even if you're going to go and live in Korat, go on to Bangkok. Then you'll understand exactly how developed Korat is. Go all the way to Bangkok and you'll have passed through Ubon, Korat, and Bangkok. So with Samadhi, if your mind will go all the way, then let it, so that it can know the whole Samadhi lineage. Access Samadhi is the same as only going as far as Korat. So you could say, um, so if you exchange Hemel Hempstead for Korat, it's a, it's a <laughs> appropriate substitution. <coughs> it's a little bit further... Uh, further along, maybe Watford instead of Korat. But uh, you can, you know, that say Watford is about halfway between here and London. So that uh, access samadhi is the same as only going as far as Watford. <laughs> All due respect for any Wat Watfordians here. But, uh, uh, so that I think is a, one of a classic example of Lumpur Chai just sort of picking an example out of, uh, out of the air, but also the the people who he was talking to would, would be able to relate to that. But, uh, yeah, Korat is is uh, is uh, local. Uh, at the Bangkok is you know far away, but it's it's the capital. Then extending the analogy, he compared the briefness of momentary samadhi to running through a town, and the longer duration of access samadhi to strolling about the town on frequent visits. Repeating his frequent definition of that state as Quote, examination within the peace. Sometimes, the, this, again, this is Lumpur Chah speaking. Sometimes the mind stops at one point of the examination and, ex and enters into uh, uh, apana. So apana samadhi is the, um, uh, what he, he calls the, uh, the um, absorption is the term Ajahn Janasaro translates here. So apana is the absorption samadhi. 
Sometimes the mind stops at one point of the examination and enters into apana. At that moment, it abandons kanika, momentary, and upachara, uh, axis. It abandons everything and goes deep inside, where it's released from all things. But that apana develops from kanika and upachara samadhi. You have to pass through them first, otherwise you won't reach it. Like you've got to go through Hemel Hempstead and Watford to get to London. Although Lumpur occasionally made use of Pali technical terms, it was not his preferred way of talking about the mind. On being asked how a meditator should, should assess what level of samadhi had been reached, he replied that it was better to be simply aware of the state of mind itself without reaching for its Pali title. And Lumpur is speaking again here. Whatever level it is, clear awareness that your mind is in a state of lucid calm, will suffice. Clearly see that the mind has truly stopped. Are you confident that the mind is pure and bright? <coughs> you have to be your own guarantor of that. With such an awareness, you don't have to worry about whether it's apana or kanika or whatever. Don't bother with all of that. It's a waste of time. It's better <coughs> to simply look at your mind and the truth of what you see. So this is very much the, the theme uh, that uh, comes up over and over again of using your own experience as a reference point and not, say, uh, gauging everything against a particular framework or a, uh, a description or a pattern that's handed to you by a, a, a teacher or by a book or, or by uh, some other kind of uh, scriptural authority, but rather using your own, your own experience. Um, and uh, this not uh, it's not mentioned here as such, but uh, in other places, when someone was asking Lumpur uh, Cha about the um, the Mahasi method and the sixteen stages of insight, and uh, in the in the late fifties, uh, early sixties, that was uh, uh, say a, a much talked about approach to meditation. That after the the sixth Great Council that took place in Burma in uh, Rangoon in uh, 1956-57, which is year uh, 2,499-2,500 of the Buddhist era. Then uh, a number of the Thai representatives at that meeting, they were very impressed with Mahasi Sayadaw, who was the, the sort of uh, chairperson, uh, the convener of the meeting, and, um, and that uh, they had established this uh, Mahasi Yekta, the Mahasi Meditation Center in Rangoon, particularly for lay practitioners, and so they were uh, they were very impressed by these sort of 10-day retreats that were established there, and the Mahasi method being so systematic, and many many uh, people uh, practicing meditation being benefited by it. So, uh, a number of the um, uh, senior Thai monks who went to the meeting came back and established uh, Mahasi-style meditation centers, particularly uh, Prapimolatam, uh, who was uh, one of the Thai monks. Uh, uh, established uh, a, that particular style of meditation in uh, Wat Mahata uh, in Bangkok. And so uh, actually when Lumpur Sumedho first went to Bangkok as a layman, that's where he was practicing, was at uh, Wat Mahata in the, that uh, Mahasi um, style uh, form of, of meditation that was practiced there. So uh, that had a very strong influence. And so uh, uh, and, and usually the, the way it worked in, in Thailand was that each meditation monastery they'd have a particular method or a particular style. So at the Ajahn Lee's monastery, then he had this 
particular kind of meditation on the breath that he would teach or at, at uh, what Mahatar they had the Mahasi method they would teach there or so on and so forth and so that frequently people would come to, to Lumpur Cha and ask about the, uh, the, the Mahasi method or the 16 stages of insight and uh, you know, Ajahn Chah was very experimental and he'd, so he'd, he'd listen to the uh, advice or the guidance and he'd try things out for himself but then also he was very, very practical, and so he, uh, uh, he uh, after a time, he, uh, he uh, would discourage people from making too much out of that or trying to always gauge their practice uh, against what the, the, you know, the, the description of the 16 stages uh, as described in the Mahasi practice and in the, the sort of, uh, commentarial literature that that comes from. And the point that uh, he would make would be such as, so someone would come to him and they say, well, I'm experiencing this particular kind of concentration, this particular feeling, um, but uh, uh, I've only reached stage three of the 16 stages, but what I'm experiencing, uh, it looks like stage nine or stage 12. Um, so am I mistaken or is, am I doing something wrong or I, I, I feel I'm not practicing correctly? And then Lumpur would sort of chat with them and, and uh, ask them a bit more about their, their meditation. And then he realized, yeah, well, I guess that for this person, yeah, they, on one level they've only reached stage three, but what they're experiencing in their meditation would correspond exactly to this stage nine kind of experience. And so, well, how, and so what they're experiencing doesn't match the, the pattern in the book. And so you, he said, well, am I going to say to them, what you're experiencing is not what you're experiencing. <laughs> that uh, you're, you're totally deluded because it it's always has to be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. And it's always exactly that way for everybody in that order. And uh, he would reflect, well, it doesn't seem to be that way. This this person, you know, they're, they're not that experienced. And on one level, they've only reached this kind of level of concentration or this kind of degree of focus. But they're having this this experience that should be happening much later but you can't say you're not experiencing it because they are <laughs> so he realized well you, you can't generalize people are different and things work uh, practices work differently for different people and and it's it's not as as systematic or straightforward you can't just squeeze everybody into that kind of box so that he would shy away from from using those kind of rigid categories and and this talking about um they say that people trying to figure out what sort, what level of jhana their mind has reached. He would just say, "Yeah, don't don't worry about that." Or he said, "Yeah, don't bother with all of that. It's a waste of time, because um, the the mind can get lost in in uh, in doubting or trying to figure out: Am I is this second jhana or is this third jhana or is this the end of second jhana, the beginning of third jhana, or is this the sort of the fulfillment of third jhana?" <laughs> and uh, they get get lost in in doubting or comparing and. And uh, uh, so he would steer the attention away from that, and to, um, uh, as he says, just to uh, says simply look at your mind and the truth of what you see. So just use your own direct experience, your own knowledge. Don't worry about what you call it, or or um, what sort of stage it might be or might not be. Just yeah, use your own knowledge and trust your own experience of what what's there, and. Uh, <coughs> be being sort of honest with yourself and and uh, or being being practical because so, sometimes it can be that you you overestimate yourself or you think okay um this uh, 
and I think this this uh, this has all the qualities of um, the realm of nothingness, or the mind is completely let go of everything. This must be a, a rupajana, so because it it fits my idea of what that is, and mm. it can be a, a, a great sort of uh, overestimation. You think, well, if it was a rupajana, you'd be able to sit there for like seven hours and not move. Seven hours? Oh, no, I mean, no, I can you know maybe experience it for a couple of minutes, but. <laughs> It's uh, it's not like I'm not sitting there in total absorption for seven hours. And well, you might think it compares to Arupa Jhana, but you know if you're only able to sustain it for a couple of minutes or for a short period of time, it, it can't be the real thing. Or at the other end of the scale, it can be that you have the idea like, oh, I'm a hopeless meditator. I'm I'm the, I'm a total novice. My, I'm really scattered. My med- my practice isn't very good. I don't know anything about Jhana. You know, I have that that sort of the um, the the kind of narrative that the mind comes up with and says, oh, you know, I, I've never experienced jhana. I don't know what that is, and you know, I've read about it in the books, but you know, my mind is not uh, hasn't sort of reached that at all. And the, there was an interesting exchange many years ago, where uh, when I was living at one of the, the monasteries here in in England, and uh, so one of the the junior monks made this kind of comments of I don't know anything about jhana, and I could you know it's it's like totally beyond me. And then the uh, the abbot sort of turned to him and said, "Don't be ridiculous." And he said, "Well, what do you mean?" He said, "Well, you couldn't possibly sit as still as you do, and be as focused as you are in meditation if you didn't have at least first or second jhana." He's like, "Really?" And this, so the, this and, he said, and the abbot was very very clear. He said, "Yeah, of course, duh." We <laughs> say it quite like that, but you know, the, <laughs> the equivalent. He said, "Yeah," it's, uh, and so that the uh, and this, uh, the junior monk said, well, "You know, really? Are you sure?" He said, "Yeah, it's a, it's it would be impossible for you to 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 sit as still as you do, and for your your mind to be as as uh, as quiet as it is, or for your breath to be you know so slow or to whatever. These different qualities of the mind in a very concentrated state. Yeah, I'm sitting next to you. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it's kind of obvious to me, but." Uh, uh, but then you then you realize that that the mind is actually in in the first or second jhana, and so for the junior monk, it's like, oh, really? Oh, well, in that case, you know, <laughs> then you can see his mind immediately grabbing. Oh, well, actually, I'm a lot better than I thought I was, <laughs> and so the mind immediately sort of grabbed. Oh, okay, yeah, I didn't think I got past. The, I I uh, got to first, you know, the first grade. Actually, I'm already in second or third grade. Wow, look at that, and. Uh, so that we can underestimate, but uh, Ajahn Chah's encouragement is, well, don't worry too much about what stage or level things are at, just notice what your mind is doing, notice how things are for you, and and work with, with that as you experience it, rather than, than going by textbook definitions or what others tell you, and, and just see for yourself. So, before we go on to the next section, any questions or... Thoughts, reflections. Don't be shy. These readings are for you, not for me. John, there was a question that arose yesterday for me, which mm-hmm. was we were talking about or we were talking about thinking and then about a bunch of so in a retreat I was trying to teach, the question arose, people were saying, Well, I keep going into Papuncture, so I was trying to say to them, Well there's Ordinary thinking and less propuncture, but do you see the two as identical? 
Uh, well, I, I tend to distinguish more between thought, which is wise reflection, and that which is conceptual proliferation or papancha. Um, so when when thought is being used in a mindful way, when it's it's yoni so manasika, when there's like a wise reflection, then the mind will think in whole sentences. It picks up a theme and says, uh, "What is going on here?" Or um, uh, uh, it was like this. Yeah, it was like such and such yesterday, and today it's like this. So, what does that say about such and such? So, it'll uh, uh, there'll be a quality of, of clarity and peacefulness, and then the mind is, a, as a deliberately picking up a particular theme. So, there's a there's a the silence of the mind. The mind is quiet, and then. It <coughs> picks up a particular question, an observation, uh, and then it it sort of thinks it through in a, co a coherent sentence or phrase, beginning, middle, end, and then <coughs> and then it, it reaches the end of the sentence or the the phrase and stops, and then there's there's silence again or, or peacefulness. So there's a, a an, uh, and like the phrase Ajahn Chah is using here, there's there's activity within the calm. There's that, there's that peaceful environment. There's the activity of that particular question or observation. So it arises within that environment of calm. It does its thing, takes its shape. There's a question, uh, and then it, and then it stops, and the calm is still there. So the calm is undisturbed by the presence of the the thought, and it has a sort of beginning, a middle, and an end. There's a measured quality. And then you say you get to the end of that sentence. Okay, well, uh, uh, okay. Yesterday it was like this. Today it, it's uh, it's different. It's like this. So, you know, what does that say about uh, my my mind, or what what does that say about how the things are are different from uh, yesterday to today? And it might be that, <coughs> that then you form a question like that, a reflection, and the mind just says nothing. <laughs> there's there's silence. I might say, well, y yesterday uh, you had done a long period of walking meditation, and that before you had the sitting, and uh, today you were just you came from a, a, a very, uh, say, active conversation. So it's a different it's a different situation before the sitting today, and it was yesterday. So perhaps that's the reason why it's very different today than it was yesterday. Uh huh. Maybe so. Is that so? So then there's a, uh, like a, a an evenness, a measured quality to a, a, an investigation or a series of, uh, of thoughts. And, it, and also, if the uh, the mind doesn't come up with anything, I say, okay, is, is, is there a connection uh, between how things were yesterday and how they are today? And the mind can be completely quiet. And then there's also enough clarity and focus of attention to recognize Nothing's coming up. I like Ajahn Chah saying, if no one, if you don't hear a voice, you just uh, carry on letting things be as they are. You say, okay, there's nothing coming up. There's no kind of intuition forming. There's no, no particular message or thing to explore or understand there. Okay, leave it be. Leave it alone. So that quality of, uh, say, the activity of thought is forming and taking shape within an environment of stillness so that the the thinking doesn't disturb the stillness. 
when it's papuncha and conceptual proliferation, uh, you very rarely finish a single sentence. It's got a one, one f- uh, idea or word or thought kind of immediately triggers another and then another and then another. It's just like a fragmented quality and just one, one thought chasing after another and the mind is sort of uh, lost in a string of associations and uh, you know, one thing kind of leading on to another to another in a much more uh, uh, sort of chaotic or uh, unformed way. And also that the mind is not aware of, of the, um, uh, say, the environment of peacefulness or, or stillness, but it's, it's absorbed into the, the content of the thought, the memory or the plan or the, the, uh, the idea. It's sort of, uh, there's no sense of a, of a context for that. So most thinking the, uh, is unmindful. The, the attention is drawn into the content of the thought and, it, and gets sort of lost in the chain of, of associations and one, one thought just kind of leading on to another, to, to another, to another and you've totally forgotten where the, the thought began. But if it's wise reflection, if there's it's more systematic or, or uh, investigative thought, then there's a very clear sense of, of uh, an intention to explore a particular subject or picking up a particular thought, and that sense of the environment of stillness within which the investigation is happening. Yes. Um, after meditation, I'm experiencing this joy and calmness and clarity of mind above all. And I realized that I got attached to that clarity, and I was searching for that clarity. But after um, a short talk with my with my teacher, I I started. I'm not really sure if I started to care less if I'm mindful or not, or if I'm unmindful. So I'm a bit confused if if I'm being unmindful and I'm allowing thoughts to be, if I'm allowing whatever I'm experiencing to be, or I'm being unmindful. Because after the realization Mm -hmm. that I'm really attached to that peace of mind, Mm -hmm. I I stopped meditating that much. Uh Because I knew that if that state of mind comes and goes, that's not it. So I can't really tell if I'm just allowing, I'm allowing myself, I'm not, let's say, criticizing myself or I'm not turning into being mode or if I'm just unmindful and allowing. Well, if I'm if I following what you're, you're saying, I think what immediately comes to mind is not so much the quality of, of calmness or, or, or uh, joy that's the problem, but the mind attaching to it. And so that uh, uh, to, so to stop meditating so that you won't have that blissful feeling so you don't get attached to it, I'd say that's a, a not a helpful track, but rather to carry on meditating and if those pleasant blissful feelings arise, then make the, the effort to, to not uh, attach to those or sense be, build up a, a sense of ownership of I've got this this is this is mine um, it's rather like having a, a delicious meal that 
the 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 food is particularly delicious and particularly good. Oh, this is really great. So it's not like oh, therefore I shouldn't eat here anymore because I'm going to get totally intoxicated by this delicious taste. I should go and find something worse to eat. You can do, or you can simply eat the same food and and work on not getting um, sort of intoxicated by that or or, or sort of a sense developing a sense of oh, this is great. I got to have this tomorrow. It, it just happened as I'm meditating for it as a month, there is a lack of time, excuses and so on. But I'm, I'm not really sure if I'm just... Because I notice that I'm not mindful. I do notice. But I can't keep after I notice. Um, I can't be mindful, so I can't keep the moment, let's say. Well, if you... Uh Again, if I'm if I'm following what you're saying, the to know that you're uh, you can know that you're scattered, that you're not being mindful, and that just to uh, the the uh, the mindfulness that recognizes, oh, today my mind's all over the place. At that moment, that that which knows that scattered feeling is not scattered, yeah. and so that it's a it's a in a way it's a very important aspect of 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 mindfulness. So there's that. The, the key, the kind of most um, sort of comprehensive teaching on development of mindfulness in the Pali suttas is uh, the Satipatthana Sutta, the Foundations of Mindfulness. And the third section of that is about uh, being uh, mindful of different moods, different uh, mind states. And uh, it's, very, it's very interesting because it says knowing the agitated mind is agitated and the unagitated mind is unagitated. Knowing the concentrated mind is concentrated, the unconcentrated mind is unconcentrated. The angry mind is angry, the mind free of anger is free of anger, and so on. So it doesn't make any kind of judgment that in that particular section of the teaching that agitate, lack of agitation is better than agitation, or that, uh, that the mind being scattered is, is not as good as the mind being, being uh, unscattered. But that in that particular practice, just to, to establish enough mindfulness to know there is this. And like uh, as Arjun Chars in this, these readings, he frequently says, just to, to know um, uh, ju- uh, just, that mu- just that much, uh, can he, can he, or it's, it's, it's this. To, so that if you're really in a confused state and you're kind of all over the place and there's a sort of great... Uh, confusion or, agi- or busyness or agitation just the mindfulness is like wow my mind is really all over the place today just that much you know, it's like it's it's like if the weather is really windy it's like wow it's really windy today oh, well, you know, nearly lost my hat there that you know it's windy you don't stop it doesn't stop the wind it means you can maybe hold your hat on your head and you take you kind of take steps to, to deal with it but your uh, the the wind is still there, and, I can, and so it might be that your your mind is very agitated or very upset, very sad about something or irritated by something. You can't just being mindful doesn't mean to say you switch off the irritation or the sadness. It can still be the sad feeling, but just to know, oh, well, I'm really upset. So that in that moment, that the that which knows the feeling of upsetness is not upset. That which knows anger is not angry. And that, in, uh, in many respects, the development of insight, vipassana, 
uh, and this uh, what you say within the forest tradition they they, they often talk about in terms of uh, the the quality of awareness separating itself out from from the state that the, the mind is aware of that that a lot of the practice is is helping that separation to occur so that the mind is fully attentive to the moods of happiness, unhappiness, bliss, or agitation or confusion, but it's uh, it's it it knows it knows those states, but without uh, identifying them, without making them into me and mine, and that's a like a real sort of a central feature of the the practice. And when Ajahn Chah was with his own teacher, which was a very, very brief period uh, when he was with uh, Venerable Ajahn Man, that, uh, that uh, he often said that that was the, the, the sort of key teaching that he learned from Ajahn Man was that the awareness and its objects are, are, are separate, that they're not intrinsically joined, and that's why liberation is possible. If the awareness and the objects were, were just one thing, the liberation would be impossible, but because the, the awareness of the mind and the objects of the awareness are, are separate. They're, they're not intrinsically unified. Therefore, liberation is possible. And that was really like a sort of a light really coming on for him. And that's uh, not just for Ajahn Chah, but within the whole forest tradition, that that way of speaking about the development of insight is really crucial. So it's not as though you're trying to... Uh, nullify all the perceptions and emotions and feelings or thoughts so liberation is not like having no feelings or no thoughts or or switching off the senses but rather it's the mind's capacity to know the field of experience know thoughts and emotions and perceptions sight sound smell taste touch and so on to to know them fully and to be able to discern what's wholesome what's unwholesome and the the more that mindfulness is is developed, then the more that there can be a a recognition of oh I'm really upset, <laughs> or I'm really excited, and and to to know well okay the mind's really excited or upset or afraid or or uh, or blissful, therefore don't get lost in that, don't get carried away with that blissfulness or that fear or wh- whatever it might be, and so then it it uh, that quality of of awareness, there's a, an attunement to that quality. You're not sort of rejecting it or suppressing it. It's like, but you're relating to it in a skillful way. Just like, okay, it's a windy day. Pull your hat on tight. You know, buckle up. You know, button up your jacket because it's windy. So you know, you you relate to the, to you you take steps to work with the the thing that you're experiencing. Okay. So to continue, the next section is called. Samatha and Vipassana. In the Theravada tradition, most of the discourse concerning the two chief aspects of Buddhist meditation practice, the calming of the mind and the cultivation of wisdom, has revolved around the terms Samatha and Vipassana. Samatha means tranquility, serenity, lucid calm. Samatha is the uh, what he's translating as lucid calm. Oh, sorry. Ding. <laughs> so that as yesterday's question about lucid calm, yeah. samatha. 
The samatha means tranquility, serenity, lucid calm. Vipassana literally means clear seeing and refers to insight into the three characteristics of existence. Although the Buddha himself did not use these terms with any great frequency, they gained much prominence in the centuries following his death. Their meaning expanded to include not only the states themselves, but also the practices directly aimed at cultivating them. Focusing on a mantra, for example, came to be called a samatha practice, whereas investigating the impermanent nature of feelings, a vipassana practice. The two terms have long been the subject of scholarly controversy. Disagreements have tended to centre on the relationship between the two. In particular, as mentioned in an earlier section, the extent to which the lucid calm of samatha must be developed before an authentic vipassana insight can occur. When referring to these terms, Lung Po would speak of them as two aspects of practice that were developed in unison, rather than two separate entities. There's a footnote there saying, generally Lung Po would use samatha and samadhi, vipassana and wisdom, interchangeably. So samatha and samadhi as interchangeable terms, <coughs> and uh, vipassana and wisdom as interchangeable terms, just uh, as being synonymous, having the same meaning. Just, uh, <coughs> just as an axe needed to be made with both sufficient weight and sharpness to do its job, so the mind that could penetrate the truth of things needed both stability and discernment. Nevertheless, given that the focus in the early stages of practice is suppression of the hindrances and, in its culminating phase, insight into the nature of things, Lumpur recognized a shift of emphasis which he would characterize as an organic process of maturation. It occurred the way, he said, that an unripe mango became ripe, or a child became an adult. From one point of view, the adult might be seen as an altogether different person to the child, and from another, as an evolved version of the same person. In a similar but more earthy analogy, Lumpur compared the relationship to that between food and excrement. Again, the in northeast Thailand, the sex, death, and excretion are all very uh, ordinary, everyday uh, subjects of conversation. But uh, the uh, uh, average Western sensibilities go, ooh. <laughs> not, not a subject for polite discussion, but um, in northeast Thailand, uh, sometimes you'd really find yourself quite startled by how, talking with the, the, the villagers and local people, how matter of fact they would refer to body parts or people's appearances or body functions and, and uh, uh, activities with uh, as a very everyday with every every uh, uh, as an everyday expression without any kind of sense there's something that's impolite or coarse or, or vulgar Lumpur also coined the, the terms pacification of mind and pacification of defilements to clarify his view of the necessary relationship between samatha and vipassana. And um, this is Lumpur speaking again. When, we've, excuse me, when we develop samadhi, we pacify the mind. But the life of the pacified mind is short. Because it can't withstand a lot of things going on, it lacks true ease. You go to a quiet place and pacify your mind, 
but the defilements are still there. They haven't been pacified. This is where the distinction can be made. The pacification of the mind and the pacification of the defilements are two different things. The mind can become peaceful easily enough when there are few disturbances, but if it feels some kind of threat, then it can't. There's something still there. You can't let go. You can't put it down. Also, to, to go back a little bit, uh, again, talking about the uh, different schools of meditation or different styles of meditation, different monasteries, um, it would be very common to, for someone to, to go to a different monastery or a different teacher and say, is this a, is this a, a Samatha monastery or a Vipassana monastery? Or do you, do you practice Satipatthana here or do you practice Jhana? And they were sort of, you'd have like different camps and different groups. And, and uh, uh, as is often the case, you get factions forming and people putting the other lot down, let's say, uh, you're only talking about uh, insight practice because you haven't got any kind of concentration. You guys are totally incompetent. You haven't got any kind of, uh, you're not real meditators. And then the Vipassana wallows would say, uh, but you guys are just totally obsessed with the bliss of concentration. You're, you're lost in your samadhi and you haven't got any real wisdom. And you get this kind of factionalism and it just becomes A team, B team, red team, blue team. You know, we're Manchester United, we're Chelsea, uh, uh, we're N uh, Naples, we're Milan, you know. And that the, uh, <coughs> the, or uh, um, <coughs> the um, Real Madrid and uh, the other one. <laughs> Any Spanish people here? Barcelona. So uh, the um, yeah, so it becomes you just sort of a blue team, red team, my team, your team. Uh, it, the, the the actual distinctions between the two get lost in the uh, and the way that they might relate with each other get lost in the sort of tribalistic uh, my group, your group. Um, and uh, you know you find this everywhere. It's not just within um, the different styles of Theravada meditation. When I was in Japan with Lumpur Sumato, when we were uh, we were in um, Koyasan, which is the sort of center of the Shingon lineage of, of Buddhism in, in Japan. It's where um, uh, Kobo Daishi, the founder of Shingon, um, was uh, established his main center. And uh, it was it was very clear that uh, you know Zen Buddhism gets a lot of uh, coverage in the in and around the world, but Shingon is also a very significant school. And uh, we were visiting this particular monastery where there was a a big rock garden, and our guide was a very, this very um, composed young lady. Um, she, <coughs> she was showing us and said, uh, "This is the biggest rock garden in Japan." She says, "The Zen people say too many rocks." <laughs> and I said, <coughs> and, uh, and I said, uh, and I so then I said, and the Shingon people say. Uh, it's it's uh, just fine," she said. "Yes, Shingon people say this. This is just fine. There are many colors in the universe, <laughs> and you could feel the sort of my team, your team dynamic <laughs> that the Shingon and the Zen people have been kind of snarling at each other, like too many rocks, too many rocks. Or the Shingon people say, yeah, not enough rocks, not enough rocks. Yeah. And uh, but this is how we are as as humans." So another, uh, this, uh, the image of the axe that needs both a sharp edge and the weight to do the, the job of 
of being an effective axe. If the if the axe is just a thin blade, it, it um, hasn't got the weight to cut into a, a, a tree or a branch. Uh, but if it's not got a sharp edge on the on the blade, then it, it also can't can't cut in effectively. It needs the weight of samatha and the the edge of of uh, wisdom as well. Another image that uh, Lumpacha used is that of a uh, a candle and a match. So he said uh, vipassana is like a match uh, that uh, you can you can strike it. So you have inside on its own you can you can be in a dark room and you can strike a match and uh, then you can see that you have light but you don't have much fuel just the the matchstick doesn't burn for very long so you can see but not for very long. Uh, samatha is like a candle. You go into a dark room, you've got a candle, it's still pretty dark, unless you've lit the candle. <laughs> if the candle isn't a light, then you've got a candle, you've got potential, but you can't see. But if you put the candle and the match together, ding, then you have a light which can sustain itself for a long time. So that's a, a characteristic genius of Gumpo Shah, take a very simple way of representing it. And also, at that time, that was the main source of light in the monastery was candles. <laughs> that uh, you—that's how you got around. You didn't have electric, uh, so battery-operated torches or electricity in in Wapapong in those days. So to continue. Meditators who took refuge in refined states of mind and feared anything that might disturb the bliss of their samadhi tended to become trapped in doomed attempts to manipulate conditions in order to maintain them. The boldness required to look closely at forms, sounds, odors, tastes, tangible, tangible objects and mental states would be lacking in them and their defilements left untouched. In contrast, meditators, at peace after a training in which the calming and wisdom elements had been developed in tandem, would have no fear of sense contact as such and could let go of attachment at the moment of contact with great, with great fluency. They created no owner of their experience. Mumpur said at this stage the practice was fitting to be called vipassana, clear seeing of things in their true light. Mumpur is speaking here. These conventional expressions, samatha and vipassana, if you want to discuss them separately, you can. But if you want to talk about their relationship, then you have to say that they're inseparable, they're connected. A lay person once came and asked me these, uh, if these days I was teaching people to practice samatha or vipassana. I said, I don't know, they're trained together. If you answer in terms of what actually happens in the mind, then you have to answer like that. Develop them simultaneously, because they're synonymous. If you develop samadhi without wisdom, it won't last long. In one of his most celebrated discourses, Lumpur captured this idea with a simile. Wisdom is the movement of samadhi. It's like the phrase, still flowing water. Gives the title of this book, which is Stillness Flowing. It's like the phrase, still flowing water. The samatha and vipassana of someone who has developed right practice are in harmony and concord and flow like a single stream of water. In the mind of the practitioner, it's as if still water is flowing. The peace of samadhi incorporates wisdom. There's sila, samadhi and panya together. Wherever you sit, 
It is still and yet it flows. It is still flowing water. There is samadhi and panya, samatha and vipassana. So this um, uh, comment here he makes, meditators who took refuge in refined states of mind and feared anything that might disturb the bliss of their samadhi tended to become trapped in doomed attempts to manipulate conditions in order to maintain them. So this is the, uh, uh, probably many of us have found ourselves blocking up our ears or trying to uh, find a, a quiet space where we're not going to be disturbed by anything and uh, this, uh, this kind of, uh, at last, you know, peace. I've got everything exactly as I need it. I've got the right cushions, I've got the right earplugs, I've got the, the right schedule. Now, finally, at last. So that this, this attitude of trying to protect the, the silence and the or peacefulness or con, uh, taking refuge in control of the environment, it's natural enough. And of course, uh, a lack of disturbance is, is, is pleasant and helpful. But it can also set up this fear of something coming along to disturb or the, or the ah, no, there's aeroplanes coming overhead or that person in the next room, the way they breathe or that... Um, the uh, the stomping down the corridor outside my room, that, uh, like a herd of uh, wild elephants charging for the water hole. So Lumpur Sumedha used to live on the corridor in the monks Vihara, and he'd he'd uh, often talk about this the herd of elephants charging down the corridor, trumpeting on their way to the watering hole of the <laughs> the, the kettle in the uh, the little. It used to be a, like a little sort of tea room at the end. This uh, thirst-crazed elephants charging down the corridor. <laughs> so uh, the um, uh, and then the, uh, a, a very famous uh, occasion where this famous within our local mythology of when Lumpocha was in London uh, at the Hampstead Vihara, and uh, it was a hot summer night. And uh, many, many people had showed up, and it was a small space, a tiny, tiny little room. They were all gathered in. And at uh, the Haverstock Arms pub across the road, they were playing loud rock music. And so they had the windows closed to try and minimize the noise. And then everyone started getting uh, overheated during the meditation. People started getting uh, overheated and gets really steamy, and people can't breathe. So they open the window, and then the, the music's really loud. and then, But people can breathe, and then... They get fed up with the music and they close the window again and then people get really stuffy and can't breathe and then open the window, close the window, open the window, close the window. And all this time, Lumpur is sitting there completely, Im completely immobile. And he sat for an hour and a half. So he gave everybody a really good sort of time to cook. It's a long, s a slow stewing. A kind of slow boil. And just no expression, just totally still and finally after an hour and a half he rang the bell and then he's obviously he spoke in Thai he didn't speak any English but he spoke in Thai and he said that you think the sound is annoying you but actually it's you that's annoying the sound the sound is just doing what it does it's just the air vibrating it's not trying to annoy you if there's any annoyance where's it coming from it's only from from your mind, if there's, there's the, the sound is not troubled, it's only your mind that is troubled, saying that the sound shouldn't be there. And so that was a very uh, direct and powerful teaching. And so that as he 
as uh, Ajahn Jayasara has it here, he says, um, meditators at peace after a training in which the calming and wisdom elements have been developed in tandem would have no fear of sense contact as such and could let go of attachment at the moment of contact with great fluency. So the sound is there, but the mind is not making anything out of it. That there's not creating a story that shouldn't be there, when's it going to be over, if only that wasn't there then I could I concentrate, I can't practice because of this feeling, this sound, this memory, this whatever it might be. But rather um, the mind takes that um, contact and doesn't make any kind of story about it. Any questions, reflections? Yes. Personally, like, um, for me, it's very helpful to meet with uh, people, like in the community. I think if I practice by myself only, <laughs> I think I thought to myself that I got enlightened or I got to some stage in terms of my practice. But here, like, I'm living with people. Whenever I kind of get self-conceited about my practice or, or about my conceptual, like conceptual ideas about practice, I always make some conflict inside or outside with people. But like always, it creates something. So it's kind of I feel like I've been kind of encouraged or discouraged by this like uh, conflict. Whenever I have some developed real peace or deep wisdom, not a deep, but relatively speaking, insight, I feel that I get encouraged by kind of like a connection with people mm -hmm. or understanding people who I couldn't understand before. And then, but on the other hand, whenever I develop some like a selfish ideas or, or like illusions. I get discouraged by this conflict. I can have some time to kind of contemplate and step back. And then I could see that I was wrong in the moment. You know, I thought that, okay, I'm, I'm doing well. You know, everything is going to be okay, or I'm better than someone, or this, I, I found the best way, or that kind of, you know, like a self idea mm -hmm. of practice. So it's very helpful. Yes. So it's a good kind of discouragement. Brings us down to earth. Yes, because it's very easy to create a sort of imaginary world, imaginary value system, and when nothing comes along to offend it, we have this. You know, we've got uh, our own our own universe operating according to our own laws, and then uh, and it's like like making up an imaginary world you know, that. Uh, it doesn't exact. It doesn't exist. It's like a, 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 a dream or a fantasy. And then, when you're relating to other people, and they, they bring you down to earth, and or that you, you find yourself getting, um, you know, you you come out of your your room, and you think you're totally enlightened, and then you go to the the tea room, and you say, "Who took the last tea bag? <laughs> that was mine. <laughs> I'm the only one who drinks that tea. Who took it? You know, oh, look at that. You're ready to murder over a tea bag." You know. Oh, it's interesting. What happened to my enlightenment? You know? <laughs> and that, uh, so, and that's that's really that's really useful. The, the uh, uh, in uh, in one of the the teachings, the Buddha says that having 
uh, spending time with with good companions is the the very sort of root cause of how ignorance is is dispelled. It's that the, one of the root causes of avijja is not having good friends, and the root causes of the development of vijja and uh, awareness is uh, having good companions. Okay, well, uh, amazingly, another hour, more than an hour has gone by, so let's uh, call it quits for today.